Hey, City of Champions. Great to have you back for another episode of the podcast. My guest this week is a guy doing fascinating things for the future of our city, and I was just thrilled to get a chance to speak with him. Dan Corns is the founder and CEO of Magnavate Technologies, and he's been in the media recently urging Don Iveson and Edmonton City Council to pump the brakes on the current LRT expansion plans and to reconsider a more efficient and cost-effective solution. Dan's trained technology deploys magnetic levitation for near frictionless movement, and it utilizes AI learning and powerful processing to generate on-demand service autonomously that maximizes transport efficiency. Imagine traveling across town in five minutes, say, or jumping between Edmonton and Calgary city centers in under an hour. Both completely plausible scenarios as Dan sees it. Dan was gracious enough to take time out of his extremely busy schedule to chat about our city and the future as he hopes to see it one day. But enough from me. Please enjoy my chat with Dan Corns. We're live now sitting here with Dan Corns, uh, founder and CEO of Magnavate. And I'm going to take a little bit of a roundabout way to get into exactly the details of your company. But for the audience and context of who you are, give us the elevator pitch of Magnavate, Dan. Okay, so the technology is based on magnetic levitation. So uh, it uses magnets to float and propel the vehicles. And the, uh, the vision is uh, maglev packet switching. So it's uh, uh, people and goods traveling as seamlessly as uh, information on the internet uh, for 75% less uh, build cost. So it's essentially like Minority Report. You know what? Uh, <laughs> that you hit it right in the head. That's yeah. exactly what it is. It's, <laughs> out of all the science fiction uh, movies, Minority Report is is the closest one. Yeah, that, yeah. that was a fantastic. You totally film. nailed it. <laughs> and so, I mean, that's that's obviously a super exciting technology. And I mean, to be involved in something like that means that you're. Uh, a great thinker of kinds, um, but it sounds like you come from a lineage of great thinkers. And I want to touch on a story you mentioned to me about your great uncle. Oh yeah, yeah. So my great uncle uh, was uh, Einstein's right hand man uh, for a while. So he was kind of working like side by side with uh, with Einstein. Was he like his lab assistant, or was he like his partner in crime who never got mentioned? Like. How does that work? I think he was the partner in crime that never got mentioned. Oh, man. Yeah. Damn it. Albert. Didn't, <laughs> yeah, he, make, didn't he, give he credit. Was, he was the Watson to Sherlock Holmes. And, nice. <laughs> nice. And, and then he was involved in, um, in what was the project after that? It was that? The, uh, the Manhattan Project. Dude, what did he do for that? So that was, that was the atom bomb. Right. Which was really secretive. And he was kind of like the mad scientist kind of a guy. <laughs> his wife would you know tell him to go for a stick of butter or something like that and he'd show up back at the house at like you know 12 hours later and on the way to getting the stick of butter he'd forget that he was going to the grocery store and just drive to the lab <laughs> i have an work, idea work all day <laughs> yeah <laughs> come back without without the stick of butter like a eureka moment consistently yeah. Um, so, would you? How, how did you hear about that? Like your your mom, or your dad, like told you, like, yeah, you used to have this uncle that was crazy smart. Did he inspire you at all to like get into what you've gotten into now? Yeah, you hear stories uh, growing up, and you know it's definitely inspiring. Like it, it kind of gives you the sense that you know oh, maybe if there's some smart genes in the family, uh, you know maybe there's some potential to to put those to good use. So, in terms of your history, you grew up in Edmonton originally. Yeah, grew up in Edmonton. Grew up in uh, Spruce Grove. Mm -hmm. Yeah, humble Spruce Grove. Humble Spruce Grove. From yeah, humble going, beginnings. There's been a couple famous people from there. Going to Jack's drive-through for uh, the drive-in for uh, for ice cream. I just had my first Jack's experience ever. Like, I'm not joking. Three weeks ago. Is that right? Yeah, we were shooting the last segment of the Grant Fuhr documentary. Yeah. And mm -hmm. um, and he's like, well, if we're getting lunch, we should go to Jack's. Well, of course. And I said, what's Jack's? And everyone kind of turned and their jaws dropped. Like, you've never heard of Jack's? It's like the first and still only true drive-in in, I don't know, if maybe the whole city of Edmonton and Spruce Grove. Totally. Yeah, it's like straight out of the 50s. Yeah. 
Yeah. I had uh, their St. Patty's Day milkshake. It was top notch. <laughs> oh yeah, Jack's is, is classic. So you didn't grow up fully in Edmonton though, you moved out to Victoria? Yeah, I moved to Victoria in 19, uh, 1990. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was, uh, that was kind of a nice change. I remember the first Christmas there, you know, playing football, you know, in the field and, you know, just uh, really, uh, really enjoying the weather. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I moved out there and that was kind of a nice change of pace. What, uh, what brought your family out there? Uh, my dad was a doctor, so he started up a practice out there. Oh, okay. And my grandparents were out there and uh, had a place on Salt Spring Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so it was kind of nice to be uh, close to the, the grandparents. Now, that's probably where you must have gotten into kite surfing, surfing, all that kind of stuff. Actually, uh, that was kind of later on uh, down the road. That was that was around like 1999, 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a buddy that uh, just got back from Maui. And he says, uh, Dan, there's these windsurfers that have switched over to a new sport called kiteboarding and mm-hmm. they're getting 20 feet of air. So I just got super stoked about it and went down to Potter's uh, Surf Shop, which uh, is no longer there downtown, but mm-hmm. uh, they were one of the first places in Canada to get uh, kites. So I bought myself some kiteboarding gear and, and got into that. Had you tried it before you bought all the gear? Or did you just think, hey, I know I'm going to like this and, and jump into it? I was sold. <laughs> I heard 20 feet of air and yeah. I just went out and bought the equipment. What was the learning curve on that like? Well, it's uh, it's it's kind of crazy because you're strapping yourself onto this kite and it's, it's kind of like, if you were to imagine the power of a wakeboard boat, mm-hmm. but coming like from directly above you, I mean, that's that's what it's like. So... So you take some hits along the way and, and, uh, um, but it's, you know, if, if you practice at it, you can, you can get up and riding within, within a week. Right. Now what, um, at that point in your life, sort of high school in Victoria, what did you think you were going to do for the rest of your life? Well, I was trying to be like Mike, <laughs> Michael Jordan. That's yeah. the, the goal is to play basketball. And, uh, that was, uh, that was kind of the big dream was, and uh, I went to the same school as Steve Nash and uh, Nelly Furtado went to that same school. So Whoa, celebrities. <laughs> yeah. What were they like back then? Did you well, go at the same time as them? They were before me, like mm. five years before me. So so there was kind of the the stories of Steve Nash, but, uh, right. you know, there was that kind of, uh, you know, idea that, hey, Steve did it, so maybe, you know, maybe I could do it. How far did your basketball career go? Uh, it, it topped off in high school. Played high school basketball, and mm-hmm. when you're a five foot ten white guy, <laughs> you know, it's uh, <laughs> the cards are kind of stacked against you. And I mean, it's um, my my goal was always to be able to dunk. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I used to practice for a couple hours a day on on my vertical leap, and and so so I got to the point of of dunking a basketball, and for me that was seriously like, a five ten. Good yeah, for you. Yeah, when I was in grade ten, I was dunking. And the goal was always to be able to dunk from a standing position. Right. Uh, and I never quite made it there. Yeah. But but I could I could dunk convincingly. Um, so for me that was like kind of second best actually. Yeah. Like going anywhere with a career. Yeah. Like well, I used to dunk on people in high school, so I, I made it at that point. Yeah. Where did uh, so when you gave up dreams of being a professional ball player, where did uh, where did your life go from there? Well, I, I ended up uh, getting into uh, real estate uh, development, so bought my first house when I was 20. Mm-hmm. Okay, hold on, stop. How did, what does this mean? Like you got into real estate development, like you just had a pile of money and you bought a place or you had saved up all your pennies from, from your yeah. kiteboarding competitions? <laughs> or or how, how does this work? I mean, because most people aren't thinking buy a place at 20. Yeah, so for me, um, I knew that I needed to save up some seed capital, mm-hmm. uh, so um, so I started. You know, I got a job uh, painting, so I was out painting houses, saving up money, buying and selling cars. So mm-hmm. um, so I had saved up a little bit of a nest egg from you know sixteen to, to twenty. So I had I had enough for a down payment on on a house. You were hustling from a young age. 
Yeah, so so I bought that house, uh, fixed it up, sold it, made some profit, uh, went and took that profit, bought a 10-unit apartment building. Is this in, in Edmonton? That's or? here at Edmonton. Okay. Yeah, because we moved back here. Um, turned that apartment building into condos, sold them off. Uh, that was back when you could buy you know, apartments for 20 grand a door right. when the prices were low. Uh, then leverage that to get into a 24 unit building, divided that into condos, uh, started my own renovation company, uh, renovated the units, and then uh, sold, sold those off. And then got into more apartment buildings and uh, bought some commercial space. And um, uh, one time uh, I bought this uh, this uh, office building. You could buy office buildings for like $20 a square foot <laughs> yeah. back in the day. Okay. Like way, way cheaper than you could build it for. Mm-hmm. So the idea was to turn this into condos. And uh, so there was a guy that, uh, that was actually living in part of the penthouse suite. And so he really wanted this, uh, this penthouse, mm-hmm. the second the second part of the suite. Right. So we could have the, the full floor. So well, you just knock the wall down and take the whole thing. So yeah, so he invites me to his office and he says, so I've got this idea for, for a deal. He says, I don't want to buy it, I want to lease it. Mm-hmm. Um, so he takes me to the back and he's got this Ferrari there, it's Ferrari Testarossa. Mm-hmm. So he says, how about the Ferrari and some cash, the shoebox of cash, undisclosed amount of money. <laughs> and you're thinking, what the hell does this guy do at this point? <laughs> so we went for a drive in the Ferrari and I was like, okay, let's do the deal. So right. we, we signed it up and and uh, so I was the <laughs> I was the 22-year-old kid, you know, driving to the lake on the weekends mm-hmm. uh, in my Ferrari with the kiteboard gear in the uh, passenger seat. <laughs> yeah, that must not have fit too well. <laughs> <laughs> it fit. <laughs> That's pretty incredible. I mean, so that would have been what year? Like what was the what was the publicity around that? Was that a was that a big deal or was that before the internet really took things and ran with it? That was I mean, that was all kind of underneath the radar. Mm-hmm. Um, that was in maybe 2003. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so definitely before things like went viral for all intents and purposes, right? To put things in perspective, when I was trying to find, you know, uh, professionals to help out with, you know, the surveying of the buildings, you know, the, the condo lawyers to register the condo plan. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wasn't logging on to the internet. I mean, I was... I mean, this is when I was first getting started in like 2000, 2001. Yeah. It was the yellow pages oh, man. and it was just start phone calling, Yeah, going through the pages. <laughs> and if you didn't get what you wanted, you just, you know, it was always, well, do you know somebody I could talk to? Right. You know? And so it was just totally networking your way to, you know, getting to the person that you wanted to talk to. Yeah. You're in that, you're in that generation that like didn't grow up with the internet but like totally embraced it and utilized it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, because at a certain point, when you're in that paradigm of, of going to the yellow pages, you know, and you're, you're just calling up contacts to try to find out answers, mm-hmm. and then when it really kicks in, you know, say in 2003, 2004, you know, when everything's on the internet, then it's like business gets a thousand times easier. Right. Because if you're... If you're an ideas guy like me, you know, you have an idea, boom, you can start researching it. Right. You're getting information instantly. You're getting not writing letters anymore. <laughs> oh, yeah. And that was it. Like back in the early days, it was, you know, a lot of times you're, you know, you're waiting for stuff in the mail and, you know, it was just, uh, it was just totally different. I mean, you had to really work to, to build the contacts and right. to find out the right information. So you're the last breed of like the truly like, grateful group of people that understands the struggle of not having current technology, right? Oh yeah, I, I'm I, one of the spoiled bunches that grew up with it. I mean, I remember dial up. Yeah. I remember struggling well, to dial good. up. That's good. <laughs> yeah. That's um yeah, if you can if you're part of dial up then then you uh, you know, then you appreciate how frustrating it was back in the day. There was some struggle for sure. 
So take us take us down the next step of your life from from real estate to uh, what was next for you? Yeah, so so with real estate, I kind of um, the the general plan with real estate was to purchase buildings that were close to each other mm-hmm. because they're easier to manage. You know, mm-hmm. if you've got one building in one side of town and another one over in the other side of town, it's it's a lot easier to or a lot harder to keep an eye on them. So so my general plan was was to purchase properties that were close to, to each other. Mm-hmm. So so I ended up uh, eventually owning like two or three properties on on one city block and at the same time I was starting to get interested in uh, transit oriented development. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of, you know, looking into the future of of real estate development and uh, and so with this one uh, city block, you know, I started uh, started thinking to myself, you know, maybe I could buy up mm-hmm. all the all the properties on this one block. Mm-hmm. Um, so over the period of a couple of years, when I was 24 and 25, I essentially um, bought up five acres of uh, of residential land uh, with the idea that it could be converted into or uh, rezoned as high rises. Right. Um, so I ended up putting that land assembly together, uh, totally underneath the radar. Um, you know, cause if people find out that, that you're putting together a land assembly yeah. and all of a sudden the prices go up. Oh, I see. So you, you just you get have holdouts. to, yeah, right. That makes sense. Yeah. So did you do it through multiple different corporations or was it just at a time where like that stuff wasn't publicized as much or? Yeah. I had different, different companies. Yeah. Yeah. Cause eventually you know, realtors will pull titles or somebody will pull titles and yeah. find out that there's a land assembly going on. Right. Plus like your name probably wasn't that big in the, in the industry, right? So they just thought, no. oh, this guy's kind of taking his first shot at, at this, right? Exactly. So you kind of, that you came in as a bit of an underdog. Yeah, so so I ended up putting that together, uh, got that approved for five uh, high rises, uh, sold out of that project. And uh, I, I guess throughout my 20s, uh, I kept on having this kind of um, this flashback to when I was 19. Mm-hmm. And I'd come up with this idea of running maglev in an evacuated tube. Yep. It's essentially what everybody knows is Hyperloop now. Right. So when I was 19, I just had this, this random vision. I mean, it wasn't me logically putting together a concept. <laughs> it was just like... You know, kind of hit like a flash of lightning. Right. Yeah. And it, for a while, like it was all I could talk talk about. I mean, it was dinner's table conversation. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, if you could just put maglev vehicles inside an evacuated tube. Like, I mean, you could get up to a thousand kilometers an hour. There'd be no wind resistance. So, so that vision kept on haunting me. And when I was twenty eight, twenty nine, I decided, you know what, it's it's time to to take a look into this and uh, so did a little bit of research online and there's a company called ET3 which stood for evacuated tube transport so it was this engineer that basically had the same idea as me um, and so, so I called him up and he had this licensing model where you could purchase a license and be part of his little group and, and help move this kind of you know this concept along and we got talking and i i soon found out there was some flaws in the business model okay i mean th- this guy didn't have any plans of raising money or you know, the idea was just to get a bunch of people together and try to make it work all right so i decided well i'll just start up my own company and you know build my own my own team and so i started uh calling up different uh uh, national laboratories in the U.S. that had studied maglev, the Livermore National Labs, mm-hmm. uh, Sandia Labs, um, Los Alamos, and so uh, after you know, kind of doing some investigating, I found out why maglev hadn't taken off, what it would take to you know make maglev work, and more importantly, I got referred on to some engineers that were building the type of maglev system that. Uh, that I wanted to build, mm-hmm. uh, so um, so I ended up partnering with them, and 
and ended up starting Magnavate in 2012. Why was it uh, Maglev specifically when you were 19? What what spurred that? Like, I mean, you said it was just sort of a random fleeting thought, but was it an example you had seen or an application of the technology that you had noticed? I mean, the first thing that comes to mind when I think in an evacuated tube is is the Costco things shoot up when they put their cash deposits, right? Yeah, that's that's kind of the idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and and the reason that you'd use Maglev is is maglev takes friction out of the equation mm-hmm. and then the vacuum uh, takes the air uh, out of the travel equation which right. a huge amount of energy is consumed by the vehicle pushing air right so if you take the air out of the out of the tube mm-hmm. then you've got the same environment as space mm-hmm. so when there's no wind resistance then you can just keep on accelerating uh, as long as there's thrust so you found found the company in 2012. What's the what's the first step then? Or I mean, you've taken a bunch of steps leading up to then, obviously. But where did you guys go once once you first founded it? So the the first step was was putting together a team. Uh, I, I hired a business coach uh, to kind of uh, do kind of a 360 and kind of uh, take a look at this and and say is starting with tube travel really the best starting place. Mm-hmm. So I hired this guy out of Boston. He's a, a Harvard-educated lawyer that went on to, to be in business, just extremely smart guy. And so we kind of worked through the scenario of what it would take to get this technology to the marketplace. And we quickly figured out that starting with evacuated tubes is is basically a non-starter. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it's going to cost billions of dollars uh, to develop the technology. So we decided the place to start is building small networks, uh, and then you know maybe take on a small project. You know, show everybody that you can you can develop a small project. You know, maybe start with like a little five-kilometer link, mm-hmm. and then move on to you know ten or twenty kilometers and and kind of take a stepwise approach to developing the technology. Right, but at that point you had decided to make the switch from from va- evacuated tubes to to a, what do you call it? Open air. Open right? air system. Open air system. Yeah, yeah. Because the, the whole key is is you know you got to keep in mind that even though there are some private customers out there that would buy these systems, you know you've got big theme parks. Uh, you know, some of them might be airports, you know, that are private airports, but the big customers are governments mm-hmm. and, and governments are risk averse. Uh, so, so we went with, with the, the design philosophy of, you know, um, there is a, a famous Italian designer and he said, if you're selling something surprising, uh, then make it look normal. But right. if you're selling something normal, right. make it look surprising. Because something that is inherently surprising and kind of out there, it, even if you try to make it look normal, it, it's still going to kind of seem a little bit outside the box. Right. So with with cities as a customer, you kind of have to dumb it down a little bit mm-hmm. and just kind of sell it as, you know, this is just a more efficient uh, transportation system. Uh, you know, it's it's faster. It's less expensive to build, you know, because the vehicles are lighter, so the infrastructure is lighter. Mm-hmm. It's got some, you know, it's got faster switches. Mm-hmm. So you just take the key value proposition and kind of lead with that, as opposed to, you know, coming in there and saying, you know, oh, we're going to you know, build 1,000 <laughs> kilometer an hour networks. Right. Yeah. You start with the one pager before you get into the 76 page deck, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I understand this simply because of my background and because of the info you sent me in advance of this conversation, but explain to the listeners, if you could, Dan, how a system in Edmonton would look, how it would, if if we were to magically replace the existing LRT network with Magnavate, what would that look like and how would that affect people's lives? Yeah, so I'll, I'll start off with how it's different. So the the current paradigm is what we call the train paradigm. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, steel wheel vehicles um, 
you know, steel wheel on rails, a bunch of train cars linked together. They're super heavy because if you build them at grade, then the vehicles have to be heavy enough and robust enough that they can withstand an at-grade collision. So um, uh, one of the key uh, downfalls of trains is they basically they go in line connections mm -hmm. and you know they have to stop at traffic lights, they're slow, uh, you have to wait for them at the platform, uh, they're expensive, you know, the steel wheel on rails, you know, causes a lot of maintenance. Um, so that's kind of the, the current paradigm with, uh, with Magnavate's technology. Uh, there's a number of technology advancements uh, that improve on existing maglev technology uh, that make it practical and affordable and uh, make it so that it's um, easier to, to install. So um, the first advancement is uh, a levitation gap that's much larger than first generation maglev systems. So the first generation systems, they had to kind of wrap around the track, you know, they couldn't have switching. Um, and because of the small levitation gap, the infrastructure had to be really robust. Mm -hmm. um, so that simply just means distance between the magnets and the train, that cushion that you're floating on essentially. Yeah, between the, the bottom of the the vehicle and, and the magnetic tracks. Mm -hmm. So how are you able to improve on the first generation of that to increase that gap? So we, we use a proprietary formation of magnets called a Hallbach array. Okay. And so the, the benefit of, of that uh, magnet setup is that with the Hallbach array, it, uh, it increases the magnet, magnetic field mm -hmm. and it creates a vertical lift and a horizontal stabilization so that the vehicles don't have to wrap around the track. Gotcha. And that's what enables us to, uh, to switch the vehicles. Because mm -hmm. that feature, in combination with a control system that manipulates the field forces below the vehicle mm -hmm. to guide the vehicle where it's scheduled to go or where it's programmed to go, rather than relying on big mechanical switches that, that move back and forth. Right. Um, so, so what you get is lightweight vehicles that travel on a continuous flow. So rather than being connected in trains, you've got this, this constant flow of lightweight vehicles where you show up to the station, there's a vehicle waiting for you, you press a button, and it takes you to wherever you wanna go. Whereas with the LRT paradigm, you show up to the station, you have to wait for the train, there's a bunch of other people on the platform, you know, it's cold, it's uncomfortable. <laughs> yep. The train finally gets there, you get on the train, then you have to wait as it stops at all the stations in between where you started and where you want to go. Uh, so it just it takes a lot longer. And um, with, with an on-demand system, you know, without having to stop at each station, that alone can uh, cut a 30-minute commute down to you know, five or 10 minutes. Right. So you, you avoid the problem of having to stop at every station by having, I forget the name of it, but the stations are offline, basically, where they, they branch off from the main line so that yeah. any any car or vehicle that, that is bypassing that station just continues on. Exactly, yeah. Like a lead vehicle uh, might pull into an offline station mm -hmm. as the, the key is if you have fast switching, the vehicle can instantly switch offline into the station, mm -hmm. and other vehicles that aren't programmed to stop at that station can just bypass it. So right. in that sense, it's kind of like the highway. Yeah. You know, like when you're driving from Edmonton to Calgary, you know, you pull off into Gasoline Alley, mm -hmm. you know, other cars that are going to Calgary, they just keep on going in the highway. Mm -hmm. So that switching capability gives you some of the flexibility of a road network mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to you know, fixed uh, train lines. So the switching, the, the automatic switching or the fast passive switching, is it called? Yeah, it's instant switching, instant or, switching. or passive switching. Right, so that's simply controlled by by a change in the, in the magnetic force and it just directs them the proper way. When it, is that correct? Exactly, yeah, there's there's two sensors in the mm -hmm. bottom of the vehicle and if, if the vehicle's programmed to go right, it, it turns off the left sensor, it right. gives preference to the right and, and the vehicle just manipulates the, the field forces to, uh, 
to go the direction right. it's programmed to go. So at, does they, do they have to slow down to a certain speed in order to have that be effective to, to take an off ramp or or do they can they do that at full speed? It, yeah, you can do it at full speed. So it, it's kind of like the highway where when you're leaving the highway mm-hmm. and you're going on to like a deceleration ramp and you're you know going to slow down when you're turning into that uh, you know that off lane. Uh, oftentimes you're going at speed and then you use that lane to kind of decelerate. Gotcha. Yeah. So with the magnets, is there any is there any long-term negative effects on human beings physically or, or electronic technologies? Does it interfere with people's cell phones, tablets, things like that? No, there's been lots of tests done and the, the magnetic fields of, of these magnets is less than a hair dryer. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's pretty low. That's incredible. And do they ever fail? Like, what's the life of a magnet, and what? They're, how do they? How do they be? How do they stay maintained? They're permanent magnets, so permanent. that they they're always magnetic. Oh, okay. So it, it lasts. Uh, how do you get them forever. to the track to install them without them sticking to everything along the way? Well, yeah, that's so you have to uh, during the manufacturing process. Mm-hmm. Uh, there has to be proper procedures in place to right. make sure that that the magnets don't stick together. <laughs> Or the workers don't have coins in their pockets. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, I mean, it, it can be dangerous because right. uh, when uh, when you're putting these magnets together, if 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 you're not careful uh, and you don't have them turned the right way, mm-hmm. then they can they can stick together. And if your hand is in between them, oh. uh, it'll it'll crush your hand. Oh man. <laughs> So does your company um, manufacture the magnets or does that come from a separate company? Yeah, so so far, like for the prototypes, Mm -hmm. we've been manufacturing them. Uh, When we scale up and we're building large scale systems, Mm -hmm. then we'll we'll have those uh, manufactured by a a subcontracted manufacturer. Okay, and really the the key to all of this is, in addition to the magnets, is the brains of the system, right? Like the the autonomous software that allows it to go on demand, that allows it to also sync up to um, platoons, as you call them. Yeah, that's right. So explain a little yeah. bit about that. So so that's a key part of it. So uh, to to you know to kind of summarize what the system is, it's it's a hardware innovation that allows you to leverage the power of uh, modern low-cost computing, artificial intelligence, and machine learning. Mm-hmm. So because of the, the switching, you can dynamically route vehicles through the network. So you pair that uh, hardware capability with uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning, and the, uh, the computer system can monitor uh, ticket purchases made through a mobile device and then it can schedule vehicles uh, to where they need to go at the right time so you're never using more resources than you need to right I mean um, you know with LRT sometimes you see an empty train car you yeah know, there's five train cars that are all empty yeah sometimes it's all full well with with this approach uh, you're only using the amount of vehicles that you need mm-hmm. and and with the computing system machine learning it can learn traffic patterns over time. Mm-hmm. So the traffic uh, demand, say from Monday to Friday, might be different than on the weekend. Um, so you can you can have the system learn traffic patterns and then send the vehicles uh, to to where you anticipate the traffic's going to be. Right. Where do the cars go when there's dead times when no one's calling for a car? Yeah. So there's there's algorithms based around. Uh, empty vehicle management. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a key thing is if there's some vehicles you don't need is routing them to the maintenance yard and just having them sit there mm-hmm. and then when traffic picks up again is you know bringing them back on uh, back online. Right. Now do you see that this technology has applications outside of, of an urban environment as well extending past cities? Yeah, so that's that's one of the advantages of uh, the approach that we've taken with with Maglev is uh, previous Maglev systems have either been urban or they've been intercity, mm-hmm. and we've we've designed uh, a dual mode uh, linear synchronous motor, which has the ability to to operate efficiently 
in a slower speed urban network mm -hmm. as well as uh, for intercity travel. So big picture, you could have a network all over Edmonton, so on-demand service, mm -hmm. and that network could tie into a high-speed intercity line mm -hmm. between Edmonton and Calgary. So right. you'd have you'd have seamless, uh, you know, last mile service. Yeah, you know, with with high-speed intercity. So ultimately, if I'm in if I'm in the middle of downtown and I wanted to go to downtown Calgary. I would hop on, I would tell tell the car that that's where I wanted to go. It would, in all likelihood, probably bring me to one of the farthest Edmonton stations and then switch me to a different car with other people that wanted to that was a dedicated car going to Calgary. Is that kind of how it would work? Uh, yeah, you could do that or you could pay a little bit more mm -hmm. and order an express vehicle. Oh, okay. So express vehicles would be kind of like an Uber type yeah. you know, scenario, but for Uber mass on. transit. Mag Uber. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Mag Uber. And so... So then you could you could order up an express vehicle, and that would that would just take you straight from downtown Edmonton to Calgary. That's you'd insane. Have, so you, you have, have a private vehicle essentially, or you and four or five friends could ride in it. Right. So you'd have you'd have multiple sizes of vehicles in addition to vehicles that are able to link up. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So you'd have anything from four to five to two hundred people cars kind of thing, or fifty person cars. Yeah, you'd have you could have fifty person cars mm -hmm. that could link together in a platoon mm -hmm. to give you a capacity for two to three hundred people, or you could have express vehicles that you know might have a, a capacity for six people, like four to six people. Right. So, what are the biggest roadblocks currently? Um, for, for this technology and the incorporation of it. I mean, like, what? Yeah. This all sounds great. Why is why isn't it happening? Yeah, well, the one of the big problems is that governments are the ones that um, make the decisions on, on what to buy. Mm -hmm. And they won't buy anything that hasn't been bought before. Right. So it's kind of a chicken and the egg scenario. Mm -hmm. They won't buy any solution that's that's not already running in a city. So it's, it's kind of like when you're trying to get your first job and yeah. you don't have anything on your resume. And, <laughs> <laughs> Must have five years of experience, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, so that's a big problem. I mean, because you look at like innovations in other areas, like say, for example, smartphones, where it's consumer driven. I mean, mm -hmm. if a consumer wants it, they just go and buy a smartphone, you know, done. The industry takes off. Yeah. Whereas with, with governments, I mean, they're, they're risk averse and they should be, uh, but, but that's just the way it works is, and so there's kind of a chicken and the, the egg scenario because, uh, you know, the, the venture capital firms that could invest in these type of uh, technologies, mm -hmm. they want to see you've got strong industry pull. Yeah. And you've got customers on the line. Right. And, and the customers, they want to see you've already got a system built. Mm -hmm. So... So that's been kind of our big hurdle, and, and we've been overcoming that by finding niche customers that are actually looking for something innovative and new. Right. And so the profile for that is theme parks, mm -hmm. uh, smart cities that are being built from scratch, where the mandate of, of the city is to use new technology. Right. So, so for example, uh, we've lined up a project at the Toronto Zoo, and. Um, that's going to be, it's a small project, five kilometers, but it's big enough that we can showcase the capabilities of the technology. It's being built on, a, on an existing guideway, and we can initially get it approved as a theme park ride, mm -hmm. <laughs> and Transport Canada's at the table to put the regulatory framework in place so oh, that after okay. that project, right. we can go and build them in cities. Interesting. So potential city customers can fly to, you know, the Toronto Zoo, you know, and take a five kilometer loop around the zoo and, and experience the technology. That's great exposure for the zoo as well, right? Oh, yeah. Well, th this one's going to be the first uh, maglev system on our continent. That's incredible. So, so there's currently no maglev trains in North America. No. Now, where are the existing ones around the world? There's one in Germany, uh, Korea, Japan, and China. Okay. And how long have those been operating? Oh, the... The Germans have been working on maglev uh, since the 70s, wow. and and so that's been 40 years. Mm -hmm. The the one in China, uh, that's a commercial system, uh, that's been up and running for about 20 years. Uh, 
<laughs> the, the one in Korea is uh, is probably uh, I think that's about five years now. So it's been operating without fault for a while now. Is that right? Yeah, without incident. Without yeah. incident. <clears throat> Um, so what, in terms of Edmonton's standpoint, are you most concerned about? I mean, your name came up to me in the first place because of the article with the headline stating that you are urging the city to reconsider this west end of the LRT expansion. Um, yeah. Because, you know, it, it seems and it makes sense to me to not invest a huge, huge capital in terms of installing while needed, but also a really like antiquated technology, at least when you stack it up against yours. Yeah, so so my, my big concern with, with that project is I was watching the cost balloon, you know, over the last four or five months. Mm-hmm. You know, starts off at 1.5 billion, then it's 1.8 billion, then it's 2.3 billion, and all the things that are making the cost go up so dramatically are things that we can take care of with better technology. Right. So, for example, with, with the weight of our vehicles, they're a fraction of the weight of, of light, rail, light rail vehicles. You know, mm-hmm. you're looking at like 15,000 pounds instead of 100. So the infrastructure is, is a fraction of the cost uh, to build ele- uh, elevated. So with our system, you know, we met up with our engineers, uh, Stantec, we worked out the, the cost, you know, did a head-to-head comparison, and we're saving a billion dollars. So you save a billion dollars, have something that's more energy efficient, mm-hmm. built in Edmonton, you know, creating jobs for Edmontonians, creating a new industry. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we were encouraging the city to say, hey, just uh, look at our cost studies, look at the documents, and, you know, see if it's worth waiting an extra year you know, because uh, mm-hmm. with with the price point that we're coming in at, you know, we could build three to four times the network for the same cost. Right. That's exactly it. So you can yeah. have and that, in my opinion, is Edmonton's biggest problem when it comes to the public transit is we're just not a very well connected city. I mean, there's parts of town that would take 15 minutes to drive a car that take 55 minutes to bus. Like they're not physically geographically that far if you went and direct directly but to take the network of buses that currently exist is just it's absurd and it's so much wasted time of so many people and so much potential oh yeah yeah and and our model is uh rather than build one high cost heavy line Mm -hmm. you you build these uh lighter lines that have more capacity Mm -hmm. because of you know the dynamic routing Mm -hmm. uh so you you cut the cost and you build a larger network rather than just one heavy 14 kilometer line right you know now how does how does this play out in the long run with personal cars and then ultimately autonomous cars do you see a a scenario where one day a car and maglev train operate on the same infrastructure yeah so you're kind of getting back to the minority report i didn't want to say it but yeah that's what i'm thinking yeah (laughs) thanks for the setup (laughs) um yeah, so like eventually, like this is something that Boeing looked at like back in the seventies. Okay, is is they call it dual mode vehicles, so you could have a network of uh, maglev, and you could potentially have vehicles that could drive autonomously on the roads, mm-hmm. but could also travel on the the maglev network. Right. So, so they'd be wheeled vehicles where you know when they transition from from the road to the maglev network, uh, that would have to be done autonomously because, mm-hmm. you know, one person messing up the transition would clog yeah, up the whole thing. Especially at those speeds, just wham, smash. <laughs> yeah, so you'd be you'd you'd have the vehicle, you know, cruise up onto kind of an entry lane, mm-hmm. and then there'd be a transition point from road to maglev. So that's like you know way in the future, like Minority Report, they're looking at like twenty sixty five for that. Right. I mean. We could build a system like that in the next couple of years, but it takes time for these things to catch on. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but but in the future, you could have an autonomous maglev network where it's not going to cover the whole city, but when you get to, you know, say within a mile of where you're going, mm-hmm. 
there might be an autonomous vehicle pick you up and right. take you the last mile. Right. Yeah, you can do your alta, you can do your um, your on demand route planning, and and so everything is synced up perfectly based on the algorithms and the anticipation of other traffic too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So with with your involvement in in this technology, how how um, up to date are you on autonomous vehicles and cars, for example? Are you well read on that as well? Yeah, I stay up to date and. I mean, we have to. It's right? part part of the industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm fully up to date on what all the different companies are doing, and you know whether they're using lidar, or radar, and, mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. What's the um, that test section of the Hende that that was advertised? There was a big billboard up on the west side that said this is going to be a, a smart test ground for vehicles. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, I, I heard a headline about that, but I didn't really look into that too closely. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now, when it comes to working with city council and, and trying to get people to see this vision, what, uh, what's what been the process for you? Well, the first step was uh, meeting with some of the different councillors to kind of get a little bit of a heat check on it, you know, mm-hmm. just to kind of see if there's interest. And uh, when, when they take the time to, you know, 10 or 15 minutes to watch the videos and, and to learn about the technology, they see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the ones that have a little bit of engineering knowledge, you know, catch it a little bit faster. But then, you know, once once they see it and understand it, I mean, then, uh, I mean, that's that's why uh, that's why we got some press a couple of weeks ago is because, you know, they were they were looking at this and saying, you know, one of them said, the worst case scenario is we spend 1.8 billion on this LRT system, and then right as it's opening. You've got your technology fully commercialized, and it's catching on around the world. Yeah. But Edmonton's missed the boat. Yeah. So that's. So I mean, I'm doing my part by kind of putting the word out there, mm-hmm. and then it's kind of up to the city to decide whether they want to stick with the old technology or mm-hmm. or look at something new. And my ask of the city wasn't, "Oh, go and use our technology." Mm-hmm. It was do a formal assessment of the cost studies and and the technology overview documents Mm -hmm. and write a report recommending, you know, move forward with this or no, this isn't for us. Who from city council has been hot on this idea and who's been cold? Uh, So far, like, I mean, so far actually everybody's been like open. Mm -hmm. There's been no, nobody that's cold. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's kind of hard to know sometimes when you meet with politicians because, (laughs) you know, meet and they'll get excited about it but right but Edmonton Edmonton as a city uh, has a hard time moving past the great idea needs more studying stage yeah into the implementation stage right like and Alberta actually too I mean Alberta is a world leader in studying high-speed rail <laughs> but we don't have any no but we're <laughs> the best at studying it that's for sure um, you touched on something earlier that I wanted to ask you about, and that's a, a seems to be one of the main concerns when people um, start thinking of autonomizing transport, whether it's cars or, or whether it's rail, um, and that's people losing their jobs. And so right. what, what's your comment on, on that? Well, back when we transitioned from typewriters to computers, all the secretaries were supposed to dis- disappear. Mm-hmm. Now we've got more secretaries, more personal assistants than ever. So, right. so the, with these, with with tech, technological process, there's always some people that need to be retrained, but inevitably it just leads to more jobs in different different areas. Mm-hmm. So, so you can't uh, you can't fight the future because yeah. we're always going to go towards uh, you know automation streamlining because if you don't somewhere else in the world will beat you to it Mm -hmm. and and they'll have an economy that's more competitive right and and that's that's the best way to lose a lot of jobs yeah is is to be behind the curve well and ultimately too i mean you know you've got people freed up time to to worry about bigger and better things instead of learning to be a train driver conductor whatever they call engineer yeah yeah they you know they're freed up to to further educate themselves and think about big global problems versus just getting so singular minded in one career right i mean that's that's in essence what 
humankind has been about is ratcheting up learning from the previous generations and continually improving and and bringing us to a point in like which not one day where none of us have to work but where our time is spent where we want to spend it instead you know people think oh it'd be nice to retire but like you'd be bored as hell if you retired and didn't do anything but instead we're most productive when we get to spend time and energy on the things that really interest us so i think you know losing jobs and that's air quotes for people listening here is simply just freeing up time to pursue stuff that's more meaningful yeah there's a futurist uh jack fresco that passed away last year and that was kind of his vision was society gets so efficient Mm -hmm. that uh you know with automation and better building techniques that eventually you know there's just enough abundance that like everybody gets uh kind of a you know an income Mm -hmm. and they're you know freed up to pursue what they want to yeah and i don't think it'll ever get there but certainly there's the potential that eventually society gets to the point where it's so efficient that uh you know you're gonna have to look at other ways of employing people right exactly you'd have to get creative have they ever done a feasibility study on on the impact the universal basic income would have on people's motivations and drive to 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 work essentially i'm not aware of any but but that would be interesting yeah like if you just you know gave a family what they needed to survive food shelter you know um and then what they what they chose to do with their time after that be interesting to know yeah i mean my my hunch is that some people would become really lazy and other people would use that to become really productive. You'd you'd get some people, you know, that would, would, uh, would go on to produce some really amazing things Mm -hmm. and other people would, uh, would watch more Netflix. Yeah. (laughs) It'd be interesting to know if that, if boredom superseded their laziness though, right? If, if you were just so bored, I saw a good meme the other day. It's like, have you ever been so bored at work that you actually started doing your job? (laughs) (laughs) And as someone who used to work in an office job, like a standard working day office job, I can relate to that because it's true, right? Like, especially if you're not super energetic or curious or passionate about what you're doing. It's just like, I got to do something. I guess I'll do my job. That's <laughs> so right. I thought that one was good. So another another, um, uh, another point of, not contention, but curiosity about if all of a sudden you know, someone waved a magic wand and the city was totally on board with Magnavate in terms of, okay, we'll build the valley line out because it's already halfway constructed, but then we implement Magnavate's system from downtown to the West End. How do you reconcile the conversation then? Now you've got two competing uh, systems. You've got the old and the new, and is it, yeah, that new system is going to be great for people going out to the West End, but anyone who's coming from the West to the downtown is then going to have to transfer versus staying yeah. on one. I mean, that's already the LRT paradigm anyways, mm-hmm. is it's always a series of connections. And whether you're in Los Angeles and you're, you know, switching from the orange line to the pink line or, yeah. you know, in Edmonton going from the Valley line to another line. Right. The transfers are part of the current paradigm. Mm-hmm. So... That's not really a big thing, mm-hmm. but if you're shifting to a new paradigm where everything is completely seamless, mm-hmm. then then it's a worthwhile sacrifice for that one transfer. When if we're going to build out a network that's going to be, you know, extending south and to Greasepaw, I mean, then the rest of the Maglev network uh, could be uh, could be all seamless. Right. Um, and then, so how does the tra- how in a perfect world? in your vision, how would a transfer from, from the current system to a new system look? Would you slowly replace the old infrastructure with, with the new technology so that you could innervate those networks as well? Yeah, well, yeah, that's interesting because uh, we, we got approached by a group in New York and they had the, the economics figured out where they could retrofit a bunch of their existing subway line mm-hmm. and their train lines and and they could pay for the maglev retrofit in seven years because of the energy savings right. and the maintenance savings. And more importantly, the with the extra value from the, uh, the property taxes, because the property values get taken down because of the, the loud noise of steel wheel on rails. Right. So with maglev, you get the benefit of the transportation without the, you know, the negative on the property values. Right. 
That's so, incredible. So they had this model worked out where they, they said it would take seven years to pay mm-hmm. for itself. And then after that, the maintenance is lower, energy consumption is lower, ridership is higher. Right. Um, so, so there could be a good business case for a retrofit mm-hmm. down the line. Right. So it's just a purely a matter of having sort of the guts and, and the, um, you know, the intestinal fortitude to, to really swallow the tough pill now of like we're switching and yeah. take, taking a chance kind of air quotes again. Yeah. But, uh, you know, and knowing that things are going to only get better from there. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's why I wanted the city to take a look at the documents because when, when you look at just how much more efficient the system is, it just makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, uh, like ultimately once we have our technology fully safety tested, it's up and running, commercialized, uh, when, when the city actually does do a head-to-head, I mean, the and more importantly, when people ride one of these systems, because right. people won't fully get it until they ride one. Mm-hmm. When they do ride it, it'll be, well, why didn't we do this before? Mm-hmm. So... So when that happens, then then there'll be a there'll be a shift. What does it sound like? Just a sh- kind of an air swoosh. When it's going at urban speeds, yeah. it would it would be almost completely silent. Um, and then when it's when it's going at really high speeds, you hear just a, a swoosh. Yeah, it's just the vehicle cutting through the wind. So do you guys have your own test area where you've ridden one of your own trains yet? So we we've got prototypes. Yeah. So we built a cargo a full scale cargo prototype. Okay. And so, um, so that's just like a s- slow speed one. That right. Where's the, that? That's that's in California. Oh, okay. I was gonna ask if I could ride it. And it's so, a little ways away. Yeah, when when the one in Toronto is up and running, you can come out and. What's the timeline on the Toronto one? Well, if everything goes as planned, like in the next eight months, we're hoping to get our first length of track up. Mm-hmm. That'd be about a kilometer. Mm-hmm. So we'd be able to get it up to some fairly good speeds, like probably you know 100 kilometers an hour, mm-hmm. uh, and then have the full system built in two years. That's pretty incredible. So let me ask you, why why Edmonton? Why are you based out of here? Uh, that's where I live. And that's, yeah, that's, and, and um, I lived in Silicon Valley uh, in 2011 for, for six months. Mm-hmm. And there was the, the opportunity to keep on living there. But when I look at, you know, Edmonton is a place to build this industry. It's, it's not the intuitive first choice. When you look at the big companies like PCL and Stantec and, and how Alberta is is a leader in P3 projects. I knew that if we could get a foot in the door and get a little bit of traction, the the building part, Alberta can do. Right. Like we're really good builders. Yeah. So so this is the type of thing where, you know, you gotta kinda, you know, plow the soil, you know, and kinda, you know, plant the seeds mm-hmm. and get people warmed up to it. And and when it does catch on, I think it'll really catch on because I mean Alberta is a great province for for building infrastructure, and I mean we're we're one of the best. So, so that's kind of it was that hypothesis that uh, that's kind of kept me in uh, in uh, Edmonton. But uh, but at this point, it's you know if there's a path of least resistance mm-hmm. like somewhere else, then I mean at the end of the day, you got to do what's best for the business, right? Right. Yeah. So do you see this as sort of what you hope to be your biggest legacy? Uh, yeah, at this point, with with how far I can kind of see into the future, I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's kind of the the hope is is to, um, I mean, my one of my uh, driving forces for getting this uh, project going and for seeing it be successful is, I've always felt that you know as a civilization we should be way past waiting at intersections, <laughs> like technologically, like being yeah. caught up in traffic jams. Yeah. I mean, you should never have to wait at a red light. Mm-hmm. That's where we should be way past that, and we're not. Mm-hmm. Um, it, we could be right. So, so that's that's the ultimate vision. Is is you know in the future, anytime you're traveling, it's quiet, it's energy efficient, it's nonstop, and it's fast. Right. Yeah. So what do you, what do you hope to see in in the next you know twenty thirty forty years in this city? I mean you you've got three daughters, correct? Yeah, and so three I daughters. Mean, yeah. That's probably a huge part of it as well, right? You want to see a better future for them. Big time, yeah. That, that's a big part of it. Um, yeah. So yeah, next twenty thirty years. It's interesting because 
people often overestimate what they can do in the next two to three years, mm -hmm. but they underestimate what they can do in 20 to 30 years. Okay, I get it. So, so you know, small term, you know, short term, so, you know, get a small project up and running, you know, have the daughters be able to jump in a Magla vehicle. They they want to ride the magnet train. Yeah. <laughs> Daddy, when, when can we ride the magnet train? Has, and, it, has anyone ever compared you to uh, the monorail guy from The Simpsons? Uh, yeah, like, not really that much. I mean, one one journalist did, but um, I think I think in Canada, when when people don't understand something, the, the first thing they do is go to The Simpsons. Yeah. You know? For, and people just love that monorail song. It's a great episode. <laughs> yeah, but... But actually, it gets re related to um, uh, the new movie. Uh, oh, what's uh, Black Panther? Oh yeah, a lot yeah. of people are saying, "Oh, that's uh, right," because it's underground in the vibranium mine. That's where they've got the the mag trains going. Yeah, they got the mag trains. So, so, so people cool. been saying, "Oh, you guys are building the same thing, but it, it doesn't require vibranium." Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, for for the twenty year vision, I mean, that's twenty thirty years. Mm -hmm. I mean, that that's kind of the vision is is a large scale seamless network yeah. where, you know, in Edmonton, you could get anywhere you wanted to go in five minutes Yeah, and it would be on demand. That's an incredible. So across the city in five minutes. Yeah. And, and Edmonton to Calgary in 45 minutes. Boom. That's, so, that's what I wanted to ask you about. Cause that just seems incredible. Yeah. Essentially it, it'd be, it'd be like one city. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty wild to comprehend, and, and it would do wonders for the economy. I mean, we've we've got a we've got a feasibility study. Uh, we wrote a grant uh, uh, from Alberta Innovates. We got awarded 150 grand, and we put part of that towards redoing the original Thames study that the Alberta government ordered in uh, in 2006. Which what was that study? That was uh, Edmonton Calgary high speed rail study. Okay. Yeah. So so that study concludes that. Maglev brings in the most ridership, brings in you know the best numbers, but Maglev was too expensive. Mm -hmm. That was back in the old study. Right. So then the next option was just steel wheel and rail trains. Right. But the but the Maglev system, when they worked out the economic benefits, uh, it came out to thirty three billion. So thirty three billion in economic benefits. So we had them redo the study with our system, which reduces the cost of Maglev. Mm -hmm and increases the frequency of vehicles. And it ended up you know, concluding that you could privately finance this system because it's the, the cost base is low enough right. and the ridership and revenue numbers yeah. are high enough yeah. that you can more than service the debt. Plus, I think they're projecting like a 21% uh, rate of return on, on the equity portion of the investment. Right. So for any private equity investor, mm -hmm. that's a really good rate of return. If you if the government doesn't get on board, could you ever just crowdsource that with the two million people between Edmonton and Calgary? I was actually thinking about that. <laughs> well, I was thinking like, how many people? Everyone would want that. There's not a single person who I mean, unless you just really don't care about life, but like, who wouldn't want that? Well, yeah, because we've we've got a we've got a financier mm -hmm. that would that would put in a good part of the debt. And then I've met with Amarjeet Sohi that said that uh, the new building uh, or the uh, the new infrastructure bank mm -hmm. would uh, would fund part of the project, and so and then there's some private equity, large private equity investors that would put in some money. Uh, so we've talked to them all, and they're really interested in the project. And we've talked to real estate developers that would buy land around the stations, right? Because they're great places for tra transit-oriented developments. Yeah. And so the crowdsourcing part, I mean, that would be like maybe you just, you know, you've got your capital stack, you mm -hmm. know, everything's all in place. And then the last bit of it you raise through uh, crowdsourcing. Mm -hmm. And and maybe it's, you know, the first thousand or two thousand people to sign on get, uh, you know, like a first year pass. Yeah. Free ridership. You know, some kind of like some kind of incentive like you, that. You could literally go out in the other city for a night and come back at the end of the night. I, you could oh, yeah. go drinking in Calgary until any time and then come back. Totally, yeah. That's insane. Have your own private vehicle and you know have a little nap on the way back. 
<laughs> I love it. Well, it's, it's pretty. Uh, it's pretty exciting to know that there's there's someone like you out there pushing this and and thinking of these uh, you know novel strategies and and things that I mean ultimately really make sense to to go this way. And we're at a point in humanity where it it no longer is like oh we we can't do that or that'll never happen the the shift is just like no it'll we're all kind of understanding of those things will happen it just is a matter of time right everything is possible pretty much yeah we we have to do these things i mean uh, uh surface transportation is the biggest contributor to global warming mm -hmm. and uh, you look at all the reports you know it's talking about 2040 2050 you know we get to they call it a two degree world mm -hmm. where you know, if the temperature keeps on going up another two degrees, that ends up being, uh, you know, famine and Irre floods and a lot of damage, right? places yeah. around the world. So we're we're on track for that. And mm -hmm. if we don't uh, uh, accelerate the adoption of, you know, clean energy solutions and clean transportation, it's uh, it's uh, it's going to be a scary future. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Dan, is there is there anything else that I haven't asked you that you feel you'd like to talk about or uh, anything that we haven't covered here that you feel is important? Oh, let's see. Um, we've like covered a lot of ground. I really, yeah, I really want to give people an idea of you know what you're about and what the what the potential is here, um, just to get them excited about what's possible too. You know, not down and out about the LRT system. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, and that was one thing I wanted to make clear to some of the councils I met with is we certainly don't want to hold up the process of LRT, mm -hmm. but we want to make sure that, you know, the city at least takes a look at what we're doing before they they move forward. But, um, yeah, I think, uh, I think we've kind of covered all the main points today. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you taking the time and I'm sure you're a busy guy. Um, and so it means a lot that you were uh, sparing of an hour and a half here for me. All right. Yeah. All thanks. Right. thanks so much, Dan. Truly fascinating stuff there. I hope you guys were all as interested in that as I was. Uh, if you want to know more about Dan's company and what they're up to, go to magnavate.com, M-A-G, N-O-V-A-T-E dot com. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week.